This episode of the Business Samurai Podcast is brought to you by Lamar Marie Popcorn. You can get now one bag and get a second bag for half off with the code BARKER at checkout. So if you like your snacks a little sweet, a little salty, a little mixture of both, go check out LamarMarie.com and all of the flavors that they have for your next snacking sensation. That is LamarMarie.com with code BARKER at checkout for buy one, get one, half off. You are listening to the Business Samurai Podcast. Growing a business is hard work. The faster you grow, the harder it is to keep yourself on the right path. Welcome to the Business Samurai Podcast, where we break down the fundamental skills necessary to become a well-rounded leader as you continue to conquer the world in your business. The best business-related podcast as you captain your own destiny and rise above the noise. To help your growth strategy in simple terms you will understand, you will learn the best metrics to track, how communication is the lifesaver when it comes to business, and how good policy will fix the weak link when it comes to cybersecurity. People, listen in on conversations with world-class business leaders and how they manage growth and integrate the latest technology. We will deconstruct their processes on how they choose to advance themselves, their team, and customers. You are stepping into a world of proactive business with your host, John Barker. Welcome to the Business Samurai Podcast. I'm your host, John Barker. Got another fantastic episode today. We've got Dr. Sybil Ingram. She's a successful and respected governance, management, and technology professional with significant expertise with various information security and quality audits and assessments domestically and internationally. Specialized in quality management systems, risk management, privacy security challenges, and information system solutions. With over 20 years of professional experience, she is one of the nation's foremost champions and active consultants for the HIPAA regulations and implementation challenges. She has held key positions with industry leaders such as iPatient Access, McKesson, Johnson & Johnson, Abbott Laboratories, Boston Scientific, Amgen, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. In addition, Dr. Ingram is nationally board certified by the American Society of Clinical Pathologists a member of the International Scientific and Engineering Society. She is an inventor and held a patent pending with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. She has a PhD in Health Science and Medical Ethics, MBA in Information Systems Program Management, and a BA in Medical Technologies. Dr. Ingram, that is a very impressive resume, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Not a problem, John. um, I'm blushing, and I know you really can't tell, but whenever somebody reads my bio, um, part of me says, yes, yes, I, I actually did that. I did you that. you oh. did all that stuff. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and it's just, I'm flattered that you would have me on your show. Uh, number one, uh, number two, I wish you much, much success with this endeavor. And, uh, I'm going to definitely try to make it worth your while to invite me to be, um, with you on your show today. No, I, I again, I appreciate it. Uh, for everyone listening, or if you happen to watch some, any of this on uh, the YouTube channel, first met Dr. Ingram on a project that we did volunteer for the Cybersecurity Forum Initiative um, a little over a year ago. We worked on it for about three months. Yeah. And it's actually where I kind of wanted to start uh, kind of a jumping off point before we go into HIPAA and privacy and all the all the stuff that your career has basically been around, because okay. I felt like the, the, the CSFI project um, that we worked on on information warfare is relevant to current events. As we're as we're currently uh, recording this right now in March of 2022, you've got the Russia invading Ukraine. 
-hmm. and a lot um i I know there was other subsets of our team members that i think actually focused specifically on those areas i know i was on uh uh, China and Taiwan and the relationship with there, but how the, how information, misinformation, disinformation really, uh, you know, affects perspective and in the world. So I kind of want to get your take after you've went, you know, you went through that. You were, the, I believe, the overall project manager for, mm-hmm. for that program and had a lot more visibility to the whole thing, but get your thoughts on what you learned during that experience uh, working, working that project um, to current events today. Well, yes. I, I, now, we don't want to be remiss in terms of mentioning Abby Dykes uh, with us. Correct. She was the uh, project management liaison between us and our team, as well as uh, with uh, CFSI. No, yeah, CFSI, excuse me. And um, that was a, one of the most um, exciting projects, even though I pulled out some of my locks in the process of working on <laughs> that I've uh, ever worked on in my life. The content, uh, the subject matter was very informative. It was very timely. I believe at one point we had about 22 people on our team. Um, mm-hmm. Sounds about right. Would come and go, you know, based on what we needed at the project at that particular time, the subject matter expertise that we needed for different countries, for different nation states, for different uh, technologies that the different nation states could uh, potentially use in order to siphon off uh, information from another nation state or just, uh, you know, and we did a little bit of a, a, a dive into the uh, dark hat world with uh, hackers and, and what hackers could do and how that information could be used uh, in an, in nefarious ways uh, against uh, other countries uh, and how governments were going to be getting into the use uh, of the information if they were privy to it. Uh, we could look at some of the ABC agencies and um, here as well as the ABC agencies that they have in other countries that are, are, are counterparts to ours and how they would use that information. So with uh, our team uh, being uh, a domestic team as well as an international team because we had people in Nigeria, Amsterdam, we had people in Spain, we had people in Greece, I believe. Um, all the different There's somebody countries. in France on ours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yep. that's true. We had someone in France um, working that project, uh, getting everybody together on one page. Um, speaking with one voice about information warfare uh, from all the different perspectives that we we were challenged with uh, the the project was for us to develop a course uh, that was going to cover nine different modules and those nine different modules looked at all the different areas associated with nation state um, issues as well as um, the history of information warfare. We um, looked at some of the uh, challenges that would be presented to our government, our Congress. Um, and so whenever uh, Paul D'Souza releases that, I would definitely encourage people to go ahead and, and look at the, the product that we produced last year. He has things scheduled. And so um, it's good that he does things early on, but um, that the topic content subject matter as well as working with 
a group that I'd never worked with before. We didn't know each other. Um, being able to pull that off and pull it off well uh, was what, one of my biggest achievements in my career, whether it was on a voluntary basis or not. No, and it, and, you know, speaking of, you know, I think I, I was there in the beginning, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was a lot. I think, I think for me, a lot of the content that I was privy to, because we had a lot of people that, that worked in pretty high levels of government in some of the, some of the three letter agencies mm-hmm. and, and what we're seeing now, I think with, and I'm going to tie this back into the Ukraine and Russia yes. is what, uh, Jim Palumbo and I, and, um, we had talked about before with a gray zone escalation, you know, where do these things that are not necessarily military, you know, the cyber warfare actually will evolve itself into boots on the ground type of situation. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing, and you know, just a little bit that I've seen on the news anyway, seems like, you know, those attacks are, are the cyber attacks are increasing. Are yes. we going to, is there going to cross a threshold at some point where this becomes they've, somebody's hit a major critical infrastructure, electric power grid, you know, something along that line that's going to go, okay, we're not just going to fight back cyber. We're going to, you know, start lobbing bombs literally over there. And I don't know if that was something in, you know, if you agree with that or based on the research that you, you, that we did, I mean, we did this for months and months on end. Right. The, if you've been listening to alternative news sources um, and maybe some of mainstream media, but mostly alternative news sources that have not been censored. The, um, if we're at the DEF CON level associated with a potential uh, nation state cyber attack coming from that direction over here, we're maybe about a DEF CON 3.5. I think four <laughs> is the highest, right? And so uh, a lot of people are, you know, all the things that we ask for people to do in information security and cybersecurity in terms of hardening their systems uh, against a potential cyber attack. All of a sudden, everyone is running around and and trying to do that because um, the war is real. What's happening between Russia and Ukraine is real. Um, It's no longer gone from a conspiracy theory theory to being a uh, definitely a credible threat. even though, it, let's say that um, the uh, president of, the, of Russia hasn't necessarily come out and stated that, <clears throat> there are other people that are close, very close to the situation um, that have been saying this, that if something like this were to occur, this incursion right now that we're having between Ukraine and uh, Russia, that we could expect uh, a cybersecurity attack and for that people need to be prepared for it. It's no longer something theoretical or hypothetical. It's something that is very real and could happen and has been threatened uh, to occur um, during during this incursion. So <clears throat> heads up to anyone who happens to be listening to this on this particular day. If you haven't uh, started hardening your systems, um, it's better late than never, but you need to do it now. No, and I, I totally agree with, uh, with with all those comments. And we we had Chuck Brooks on. I'm not familiar, not sure if you're familiar with Chuck Brooks or not, but um, you know, big you know thinker in the in the space, and and he believes that stuff like happened with Colonial Pipeline last year, and now you've got these this situation now. 
has really made this kind of a mainstream topic because now you're looking at things that are targeting, you know, the, the typical person at home versus strategic government or universities or businesses that are at threat. It's starting to affect people in their houses, in their homes. Well, we have a lot of soft topics, excuse me, soft targets over here. Yeah. And, you know, with me being in healthcare, healthcare is definitely a soft target. Um, Healthcare um, needs to be open for a variety of reasons in terms of sharing information back and forth between people. And uh, unfortunately, um, in the in the process of having to be so open, it's it's very soft. Schools are soft targets. You know, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that our utilities are not uh, soft targets. I'm hoping that they <laughs> become as hardened as as they can uh, become. And there's no reason why um, there shouldn't be more funding allocated to make sure that our infrastructure over here does not suffer what the colonial pipeline people have suffered. The other thing that I wanted to mention, and um, man, because it just kind of came to my head while, while we were talking about this subject, you know, the magician has you look at the hand over here while he's really doing something. <laughs> so, you know, if, if we're just looking at Russia and Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine, Russia right. and Ukraine, we need to maybe kind of look over here a little bit at, at one of the countries that's notorious for nation state uh, incidents. And it starts with a big C and ends with a big A. And, um, um, you know, this is a a good time while people are distracted over here for them to just come swooping in with uh, some of the things that they typically do. And who's going to get the blame? Are we going to blame Russia? We're probably not going to blame, excuse me, Ukraine. But Russia will probably come up first because of all this back and forth and back and forth and rhetoric and, you know, what's going on when actually we need to look at the big C and the <laughs> big A people doing things or, you know, there's a, a, a couple of others that we could be looking at as well. But um, we need to keep a swivel on at all times right now um, because the distraction is very real. And a distraction will cause us to to not be on point where we need to be. So we need to keep on a 360 swivel. In uh, some of the video game I played, we called that third teaming. You're in that heavy firefight with the first team, and the third team comes out and knocks you out. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. So let's let's pivot. You mentioned uh, you mentioned healthcare. Let's get into kind of your area of expertise, what you've been doing, I believe you 22 years uh, with HIPAA regulations. Give us a little yeah. ba- bit of your 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 background. What? How did you get involved at, at that this high of a level uh, with with HIPAA? Because it's been, I believe, the the what it became law in 1996. 1996 is when it uh, was uh, affected into law okay. by President Clinton at that time. Um, you know, how did I get here? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I laugh at myself. I, you know, and, and that's a question that I ask myself on on a regular basis because uh, as a little girl, this is not what I thought that I was going to be doing. <laughs> uh, as a young woman, I this is definitely not what mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be doing. And as a, as a pretty middle woman, you know, professional woman, this is still not what I thought I was going to be doing. <laughs> uh, but I, what I, I will say is I've enjoyed the journey. I've, I've enjoyed the journey from going from a uh, 
uh, a clinical background, research background, a patient care background, and to healthcare information systems, where I uh, learned about uh, security information, uh, security at that time, to going and working with different consulting firms, uh, being a director with a, a couple of different companies, and then um, right after the Y2K initiative of trying to make sure that no planes fell out of the air at midnight uh, when we turned <laughs> to the next century, uh, being thrown immediately, immediately um, in 2000 into HIPAA. And so uh, I remember I went to about 16 different uh, um, conferences trying to figure out what this thing was, you know, trying to make sure that it wasn't a hippopotamus that was being put on the yeah. uh, and uh, the uh, hippopotamus is definitely uh, uh, what it, it turned out to be in terms of it being a mascot um, for, for HIPAA and people misspelling it all the time and, and that type of thing. But uh, I was fortunate to have uh, very good uh, mentors at that time. Uh, Bill Braithwaite was one of the authors of HIPAA, and he took me under his wing. Oh. Um, during that time and I was able to shadow him on many of those conferences and uh, just have many uh, talks with him. Uh, another one was uh, attorney Alan Goldberg um, mentored me quite well from uh, the attorney's perspective because the attorneys uh, specifically when it came to the privacy portion of the regulation really jumped on it at that time because it moved from EDI to privacy to security. And so there was another gentleman by Tom Hanks that worked with me at Beacon Partners. Um, and Tom hired me. And then about eight weeks later, uh, he left. He was considered one of the leaders, uh, the futurist in, in HIP at that time, and had about 12 different um, presentations lined up for him to give. And what happened was, when he left, they put me in his spot. So um, 12 people were expecting this futurist to come along that they had been talking to to years just in, in chat. And here I show up giving the presentation. So, you know, uh, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was able to learn very quickly and uh, come back and get back with people where I couldn't answer a question very quickly with them within the next uh, 48 hours and just have that level of discipline and rigor about this particular law. Now it's morphed, as you know, over the years, um, the business associates in the beginning did not have to be compliant with regulation, only covered entities. And I mean, this, there is this whole issue about, you know, what's a covered entity? And it's just, the law is very clear. It's very clear. It's um, people, providers, um, insurance companies, that type of thing. You have um, healthcare clearing houses, primarily. But it basically talks about those people that need to send um, information electronically. And we're talking about the claim from a healthcare encounter. People who send claims electronically to insurance companies electronically, as opposed to paper, those people have to be HIPAA compliant. It's no more than that. So people will always try to run around and figure out, well, do I have to be compliant? Do I have to be? Look at this little definition right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
not that big. And the operative word of this definition is electronic. So if you so if you do that, you know, yeah, you have to do this. So then when the business associates coming along, especially when you look in the transcription area where a lot of the uh, transcription was going out of country and um, mm. where doctors would dictate, you know, yep. a procedure during the day, um, they would have somebody to transcribe it out of country at night. And then seven o'clock the next morning, six o'clock the next morning, they would come in and everything's already typed out and ready for them. There was no way to hold those people accountable, right? Because they weren't uh, in the U.S. should a breach occur out of the country. So um, that uh, put in 2019 with the um, Omnibus uh, Act, with the HIPAA High Tech Act, when they made business associates accountable and having to be um, HIPAA compliant with at least the security and privacy rules. That changed a lot in terms of the perspective of, oh, I'm a business associate. I don't really have to do anything. Uh, knock, knock. Yeah, now you do. And you're a business associate by another very small definition. You know, if you're receiving or doing something for on the behalf of this covered entity up here that makes with protected health information, that makes you a business associate. And so um, I, I people laugh at me all the time because I'm, Maybe this walking encyclopedia of, of HIPAA. <laughs> we and, couldn't uh, tell. I couldn't tell by listening to that. <laughs> yes, I, I have to laugh at myself, but, um, and I do. You know, I, I take my work very seriously, but I don't take myself very seriously. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but I, I've seen HIPAA weaponized, <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, over these years where people in the hospitals or at the doctor's office or at the pharmacies or whatever will use HIPAA as this weapon. Like, no, I'm not going to give you this because HIPAA told me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking around for, you know, the sentient being that HIPAA has become. Uh, it's taken on a life of its own. Well, I can't do this because <laughs> this i can't do this and it really beat me being in the field and knowing that that's not true um i at first i would try to correct people and then i said nah let me just speak to your supervisor <laughs> <laughs> your supervisor supervisor uh mm. you know if we're going to have this little fight i'm not going to have a fight with you i'm not going to have a fight with a person that believes the hippo is a living breathing so, <laughs> so uh, let me preface the my longer question based on how you answered it. Most of the most of the places you're working with, are you working with? You, clearly, it's like bigger organizations, bigger corporations in the medical industry, or larger hospitals versus the private practice areas, um, no, and smaller doctors. Anybody who sends claims electronically. So no, no, I mean you specifically. Yeah, me. I've. I've work the gamut so how larger organizations though but i've had some private clients where they're one doc shops sure so one of the things that's been happening in the medical industry over the last several years is a mass consolidation you know there's a lot of private practices that are going out the ones that are there have to tie in into the uh you know into the larger hospital because you know they got to do surgery so they got to you know electronically electronically transmit you know to to the surgery centers or to the main hospital to do work how has that af- affected 
you know, enforcement, you know, between the, 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 the private doctors, because I've went into some that literally they're not adhering to anything. Um, and then I'm going, hold up, you're an entry point into the hospital. You've got all of this stuff tied into there. Mm-hmm. Right, do you think that this will kind of uh, harden the systems up a little bit as we're getting consolidation? Has this been a problem transferring records around? How do you think that's affected the industry from a security standpoint with this mass consolidation as, uh, as, these, as the larger companies are sucking them up? Well, this, okay. So it depends on how they're being acquired. Um, if that smaller practice is being acquired um, and they're going to be considered employees of the larger organization, then the larger organization can go ahead and impose their expectations of policies and procedures, uh, software, interfaces, uh, HL7 standard mapping, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, back and forth, you know, to the hospital or to the larger organization like a healthcare insurance company. Um, if the smaller practices is still just going to be considered a contracted server, contracted service to the hospital or to the ambulatory care uh, surgery center or something like that, then they have no way of enforcing this uh, person over here to make sure that they have their policies and procedures, that they've gone through their security, their privacy, that they've done their risk analysis uh, per HIPAA. They can't do that um, unless they have it in the contract that you will be HIPAA compliant per 45 uh, CFR parts 160. 164. I mean, it has to be some, the only way that, that the larger organization can enforce it upon the smaller organization is contractual. Okay. And so one of the things that the large organization needs to do as a part of their due diligence, if they're going to be working with this uh, other entity, is to go in there and make sure that they have their policies and procedures, make sure that they've done their risk analysis, make sure that all their people have been trained. I mean, there's just some basic things that they need to do as a part of their due diligence during the uh, contract phase. That's the only way that uh, they can, you know, they don't, they cannot dictate the EMR, EHR that these people are going to use over here. But sure. what they can say is in order for your information to come our way, it needs to come over here in this format. It can be, usually it's going to be HL7. Um, or if, if we're going to be going to the insurance companies, then it needs to be NCX 12, 50 and 50, 10, I believe 50, 50, 50 and 50, yeah, 50 and 50, 10 are the um, new standards for the need to go back and forth if you're going to the insurance company. So there's ways that it can be enforced. It just depends on if this entity is a contractor or if this people, if the people over here have been grabbed and are now an employee of the large organization over here. Oh, the reason I bring that up is because we, you know, when we talk about security, we talk about supply chain issues all the time mm-hmm. and who your partners are, who your vendors are. And I, I'll tell you a story. I am okay. obviously nowhere near as in depth with this, but this is an experience that I had several years ago. This practice is, it has been bought out, but I was brought in to do an initial overall HIPAA assessment mm-hmm. and walking into the env- <laughs> I, I laugh a little bit just thinking about this. Yeah. I, I walk into an environment where every piece of data, everything circumvented the firewall within the facility. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't in place. 
and that the guest Wi-Fi, if you were sitting in the lobby, was on the same, you know, basically the same network. You could access the server if you knew what you were doing or sitting in the parking lot. Everything was totally accessible. And it was happened to be tied into the hospital that was sitting in the same parking lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know, you know, and, and I had and been curious of if the hospital, for instance, knew about that, would they sit there and go, hold up, we got to cut you off because you're putting us at risk from us maintaining our thing. So, so how is that, how does the enforcement work if in a, in a situation like that? Um, well, it's constant polling and trolling in the, in the background. I mean, if you have, um, if you're not logging events, um, if you're not mm-hmm. logging events to your CCTV, if you're not having somebody look at the CCTV, if you're not looking at somebody, uh, looking and checking the logging events of people entering and uh, if, where they're badging in and out. If you're not looking to see if people are carrying things in and out. I mean, like that's the part of that's on the technical side of uh, sure. some of it's on the physical side of, of the security rule um, in HIPAA. So it's just a matter of people, you know, it's what I'm finding, John, is that people feel like it's a one and done type of deal. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, that's I'm, and that's in unfortunately a lot of the industry. Cyber, uh, it's, we're there. Right, right. <laughs> <For> the I've second, <laughs> maybe. Right. I've done it. I've, it was painful. I don't feel like dealing with it anymore. But I've done it, and then an incident comes along, and then people will wonder, you know, well, how did that happen? Because I set up all these things in place to make sure that it didn't happen. Well, did you test it? Did you test what you implemented? was what you implemented effective when you tested it. If if you if you didn't test it, then that's why you had a problem. If you did test it and you found out that it wasn't effective, then why didn't you come up with another solution? And if you're supposed to have people monitoring these things, then and they're not telling you, um, then you've got, you know, some problems there with people not reporting that there's an issue. That's why you know, you go in and, and you saw all those things, and but, but nobody's saying anything, probably because they think John's looking at it or Terry's looking <laughs> at it or, you know, Jimmy's supposed to be doing that over there. And then you get this, you know, point, you know, the story about when you point one finger up, you've got three fingers pointing back at yourself. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's just a matter of not adopting the mindset of that putting things together is one and done when it comes to security, that security has to be all monitored all the time and that you need to, to look at it more than once a year. Um, even, you know, people say, go ahead and look at your policies and procedures annually, but you need to look at your processes no, le- no less than every 90 days um, to make sure that, you know, they're working. Uh, I don't know how many times I have to talk to people about patch management. You right, know, okay. Why, why is it that I'm having to talk to you about making sure that, you know, you've got the most update patches on whatever software or firmware that you're working with? And why is it that I need to talk to you about the fact that it probably needs to be done in sequence? Um, <laughs> when you patch, because you can't patch E and you haven't patched A, B, C, and D yet. So that it yeah, can- I was gonna I was gonna really clarify for people listening if they didn't know what that meant. Like, hold up, you haven't patched in nine months. Don't start with the new one, <laughs> and don't wait nine months. <laughs> no, we're not trying to make a baby. Uh, no. You know, we're, we're trying to keep safe, 
stay secure, and stay functional, stay up, you know, at any given time. We don't want to bring ourselves down. You know, when we've got this fence and we've got they're building all these firewalls, the last person that you want to implode your system is yourself or your organization. Right. Do you find that, you know, a lot of people consider security, it's a, you know, it's a cost center, but now are, do you, are you finding a lot of the organizations are, are they trying to just get by with the bare minimum or are they really taking it seriously now with ransomware increases, threat vectors are, are much more with the more devices, you know, your surface attack area is way broader than it used to be, particularly there's things in, in the medical industry that I don't think people even think about. You know, we always think about your computers or your phones, but look at all the medical devices that may, you know, they're probably... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them IoT devices, Internet of Things devices, for lack of a better term. But yeah. do you find that the hospitals really do make an effort at this? Or is this just trying to get, and I use the term hospitals broadly. I didn't mean to. Yeah, I but but um, do you find that it really is the security of the information, the data, the, you know, because there's a, there's a physical risk to here if something happens on top of just data leakage or data, people stealing data? So what I would say is um, in healthcare, um, who has a tendency to, to be slow adopting certain things, um, healthcare really needs to have very strong CTOs and CISOs, Chief Information Security Officers. When they have, at a minimum, a very strong Chief Information Security Officer that is very vocal, um, and is the, I don't want to say uh, a control freak or anything like that, but is uh, has developed those relationships in the organization where anything that comes in that may connect to the internet, I need to know about it, and please uh, let me evaluate it so that I can keep it secure for either the organization or the patient that you're going to put this. A medical device into that is going to be sending data back to their primary physician or back to, you know, the healthcare organization, please let me be a part of that decision. When the CTO, CIO, the CISO or whatever is not involved at that level, then you're going to have leakages occur across the organization and all of that can be prevented if they are brought in early on in the decision-making process. Um, they need to be a part of every panel of every medical device that's being brought in, uh, whether the device is class one, class two, class two, three per um, FDA uh, categorization, with class three being implantables. Um, so the, my just my short answer to that is the stronger those people are, and the more that the organization embraces bringing them into the decision-making process, the better everything is going to be in terms of securing uh, the information that's going to be going back and forth between, I mean, because it could be hacked at any given time. And that's one of the issues that um, people are talking about in healthcare, particularly with uh, medical devices that have RFID uh, implanted into them, yep. either you know, for, for tracking purposes, inventory purposes, or whatever. And um, particularly for those devices where, let's say if you're looking at some of the devices that regulate pacemakers. I was um, going to say, I know somebody that has a pacemaker, and that's what I immediately thought to when you said that. Right. Yep. Uh, you're looking at pacemakers, 
pacemakers, you're looking at insulin pumps, you're looking at anesthesia types of, of devices where um, that information is being transmitted back to a clinician and they're able to uh, remotely titrate the information, titrate the dosage up or down or uh, with a pacemaker, you know, regulate uh, the uh, pulses uh, to the point where it's going to be best, you know, for, for their patient. There, that's you know, a man in the middle attack uh, mm-hmm. scenario right there if they didn't involve security um, in, in taking in and bringing in that device and then putting it into a patient. Um, to your earlier question, though, healthcare has become a little bit more sensitive when it comes to ransomware um, okay. to the point where, you know, some doctors have had to, to um, close their doors <clears throat> because they didn't have enough money to be able to pay the ransom to get to their uh, medical records of their patients. That's very sad uh, when those situations happen. And, and those situations are very preventable, but uh, the healthcare cl- clinicians um, and well, just practitioners in general need to understand that there's this whole security organization, society, people out here that you can go to and ask for help um, to, to have access to the information that um, someone is asking for a ransom for at this particular time. And you don't have to lose your livelihood. And you don't have to recreate all that information over, um, but just ask, you know, be willing to ask for help. So ransomware has become a number one issue uh, within healthcare because there are so many ransomware attacks that have been happening in healthcare. No, absolutely. And I, and I used to see and, uh, you know, reading articles and stuff for the places that were getting hit. A lot of them were not keeping their technology up to date. You know, they were using systems that are well past end of life. You know, you're hearing things of old versions of Windows still in place. And you're like, hold on a second. <laughs> but I want to shift. I've got a HIPAA story and I want okay. to see what your response would be to this because this happened to my mom. Okay. And I got a I got a call in a panic and I and and I think this ties into if there's if there's fear of people reporting an incident. Mm-hmm. But my mom was having some medical issues. They had moved and she was going through this very long, arduous process of getting a copy of her records. Mm-hmm. Um electron, you know, to transfer from where they were going to where she had to go get seen. Right. After waiting six months, mm-hmm. she she gets she logs into the portal, they had sent it. And there was somebody else's entire medical record attached to hers. Uh, and, and, and so I get a call in a panic. I'm like, you need to, you need to call the hospital. Let, you know, let, you know, be upright that, Hey, something, something happened. Cause she got hers as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and come to find out that the other person's record was married to a doctor. And when they got wind of it, they weren't very happy about what had happened, okay. but the, the, the HIP officers between the two different hospitals started kind of playing, pointing fingers at each other. And I'm like, well, that's not either our problem. You didn't verify what you sent and you didn't verify what you received. And and my question with that, you know, to them, the reason I told my mom reported, I said, I don't know if that's a one-off or if that's systemic in their processes with what they're doing, if that's happening 10% of the time, 15% of the time, if that had, if that situation scenario happened to you or someone close to you, what, how would you have responded to that? Um, putting you on the spot. (laughs) Having too much knowledge sometimes can get you in trouble, right? That's why I'm asking. (laughs) Right. 
<laughs> so in that scenario, the person who was at fault was the sender. Okay. All right. Um, not verifying the information first before they sent it because in security, security is end to end, not point to point. Okay. So not uh, verifying that that information was just your mother's information, that that was an issue there. Somehow or another, getting this other person's information attached to your mother's information and sending it out, you know, that that's not something that probably happens a lot, but I could see where if you're not checking, if you're not checking, you know, doing a hash uh, to make sure that just your mother's information went over and not your mother and somebody else's information went over, you know, that's an integrity check that right. obviously, you know, wasn't in place there. So um, um, the I don't care about the CSO and the CPO, chief security officer, chief privacy officer, whoever's trying to point fend, uh, fingers. The offender was the person who sent the information out. So it was not the receiver's responsibility to make sure that that was okay. It was it was not. Now. Um, let, let's say that the receiver found it before your mother did. If the receiver found it before your mother did, they have an obligation to report it back and get it corrected before it gets to your mom. Gotcha. But, right. So uh, because something like that would happen so, so rarely, I could see why the receiver didn't do a check. Um, to, and it came in with your mother's name. Okay. It could be this much. It could be this many, you know, in terms of bits and bytes and, and that type of thing. And let's just send it on because it's, it's not something you would, you would expect for the sender to have done the integrity checks on their end before it went out. But, you know, if there was, so now, so now what are they going to do? Is the receiver always going to be in a position where they're going to have to check and see that the information is correct or not? It's not on them. It's on the sender. It's, it starts there. So um, I don't know why it took six months. Because it, it, she, mil, mil, military is involved. Military hospital is involved in that stuff. So <laughs> that's what took so long. But okay. yeah, no, I, she called me in a panic and she gets like, I got this PDF and, you know, it's all of my stuff, you know, in an email. And then I get to the go to the end and it's another patient's entire record. And it was just I, I had not heard of that. And I didn't know if it was like the uh, the electronic medical records system messed up or somebody legitimately on the that first end at the first hospital just scanned something into the wrong the wrong way. But I found that to be interesting. It could be system error and it could be human error. But an error was made. Um, oh, for sure. You know, and I'm glad that your mother brought that to your attention because yeah. another person, you know, could have taken that and said, hey, look, you know what I got? I got my medical record and I got somebody else's, you know, yep. just like your 15 minutes of fame um, on TV um, with with a reporter and, you know, news people around. Oh, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm glad that your mother had enough um, wherewithal to know that this was wrong and, and you know, just take take it to you and you know, kind Take of it let people work it out internally. Because when we get off of, of here, there's a page uh, that is sponsored by uh, the Department of Health and Human Services of every breach by every entity 
that has come to their attention that they make public. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I call it the HIPAA wall of shame, or industry <laughs> called the HIPAA wall of shame. It has the entity's name, how many people were affected, what was the cause, and uh, who did it. <laughs> and and uh, usually, it's and this be- is why people don't want to report. <laughs> People don't want to report. You know, if 500 people or more were affected by the breach, it, you can go out there yeah. anytime you want to and look and see who who's doing what. And this, you know, speaks to the credibility and the reputation of the organization with regards to sure. their security uh, processes or, or lack thereof. Yeah, and that and that sometimes, at least with a, a little bit of my personal philosophy mistakes are going to happen particularly if there's a human element involved the most rigorous process sure there being a technical control in place to prevent you from doing something something most like you're tired you're not paying attention you're doing 19 things because you're doing the job of three people an accident is going to happen um uh but transparency without repudiation sometimes i think you know short of it being egregious you know, like you said, 500 people, uh, you know, that needs to be out there. <laughs> it needs to be out there. I you wanted to... Yeah. Go it's ahead. It's like eyed these people, too. Yeah. <laughs> I think because uh, it's 2022. It's yeah. 2022. This law has been in place since 2000. No, 1996. 96. And the security regulation has been in place since 2004, 2005. And we're still having these issues in 2022. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's oh, absolutely. Oh, we're still getting around to it. Oh, we're all you know. (laughs) uh, We're going to work on that. You know Uh, how it is. You did it by now. You're not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) But I'd be remiss with to not ask. uh, You know, I I do not know what this is involved about um, COVID and the privacy stuff. And you had worked in, uh, I know you said Baltimore and public schools with some auditing. Can you explain a little bit of what specifically you were doing that was COVID related in the, in the school systems? This is interesting. Um, so I'm able to use my audit and assessment uh, experience in another way and, and push up uh, my auditing and assessment experience and use it for uh, COVID. And uh, a situation here uh, with this um, 72 hospital, excuse me, 72 schools, where they were trying to get the children back to school, um, as opposed to having them, you know, take their lessons and do everything on a virtual basis. So this was part of the COVID initiative, getting back to school face to face. So you need to look, we, what I did was, Normally, you know, in security, we're looking at standards like NIST or ISO or whatever. Here, there's a group of standards that have been put in place by the uh, school system and uh, coming from the CDC, coming from OSHA, and some of the things that have been published by FDA about what people needed to have in place in order for children and the teachers and other staff members of the school to be safe when they came back to school. So we looked at uh, hand sanitizer, the percent of alcohol in the hand sanitizer, you know, if they were wearing masks, if they had signs up that said stand six feet apart, if they were on the floor and they were actually six feet apart, if they were on the walls and they were actually six feet apart, 
uh, looking at signs near the near the elevators that said no more than so many people could be in the escalator at, at any given time. And then looking in the elevators, excuse me, elevators, um, and seeing that uh, there were signs in there that said six feet apart, uh, making sure that uh, there were partitions in uh, the various places where they were going to have people come through, looking at people and how they were keeping their records associated with temperature uh, taking as the children uh, came into school and as the staff came into school. And if they exceeded their threshold, which I think was 99 uh, degrees Fahrenheit at the time, because uh, they had dropped it uh, from like 100 or, or at that time. If anybody presented that way, how were they going to take that child and isolate them in a room until their parents could come and get them or arrangements could be made for them, that child to be taken um, and, and to go home, for them to go and get COVID tests to get a doctor's release before they could come back to school. Same thing with all of the uh, staff that was in the hospital. So there was a, this list of things that they expected for these 72 schools to do. And myself and four other auditors uh, did the audits for those schools uh, and came back with a report to say how many were in compliance, how many were uh, not in compliance, and what the remediation uh, pieces that needed to be done per school. And then sure. overall, yeah. So that's uh, what we were doing with, with that particular project. With uh, Baltimore City Health Department, I was asked to come up um, because of my certification with the Department of Homeland Security uh, to help them with their recovery planning because the pandemic is considered a national disaster, uh, government disaster, and it falls under um, the definitions of Homeland Security with their disaster FEMA protocols. So um, I was working with them on their recovery plans for a while until it became very apparent that um, recovery planning was a little bit too early uh, to initiate because Delta and Omicron came along. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course. So, yeah. So um, the other people on the team were able to stay. Uh, I was asked to stand down until they come up with uh, a time where they're going to be doing recovery. Maybe I'll, I'll go back to that. It was very interesting looking at it from the perspective of a city department and then um, the overall department of the state of Maryland, how they were working together with Baltimore City and how the state was working with their initiatives and then looking at the counties because people don't realize the cities are responsible for their own plans. The counties are responsible for their plans. And the state is responsible for their plan yeah. <laughs> coming down from the feds. All right. So you want to harmonize all of these plans together uh, for, for any type of uh, incident, for any type of disaster, but they can be written in silos. And so that happened in Virginia. <laughs> right. Right. And so when you're coming up with these emergency plans, it would be nice if you can have everybody together. And need some more tabletop exercises, it sounds like, that happens around this. <laughs> tabletop talking, Starbucks, whatever it takes to get people together. Uh, so, I mean, because that's one of the things that's coming out of this whole pandemic is people did uh, pandemic planning back in uh, 2009, 2010 for that. 
but then they left it alone. So then they hadn't looked at their pandemic plan mm -hmm. for years. So then this one comes along and this one is uh, a worldwide pandemic. Um, right. So there's a lot of more moving parts that went along with this pandemic than it did with the, the one for 2009 to 2010. So um, many of, of the uh, things that we have to look at for COVID in terms of preparation and going forward, because some people um, are, it's, COVID is not over. Uh, people feel like it's over and everybody's kind of COVID weary. Even the planners are COVID weary. But we, we're not at the point where you know, we can just throw everything away and say, we declare that the pandemic. Yeah. When the I that sounds uh, like Michael Scott. Remember from the office? I declare bankruptcy. I declare, <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you've got these human beings running around saying, we're tired. We're declaring that this pandemic is over. It's not mm. an emergency anymore. And the virus is going to say, hmm. Well, you know, you know, let, let, let's see about that, you know. <laughs> um, we can't necessarily, we can maybe scale the, down the emergency response, um, but we still need to be on our P's and Q's when it comes to um, maybe learning to live with it like we have done with uh, influenza. Uh, so that yeah, you're right, it becomes more of an endemic type of process as opposed to a, this big emergency, this big, big pandemic type of issue. Right. So the story is still out on that. We hasn't been closed yet. Well, awesome. Well, I greatly appreciate your time. I clearly know who, if I have HIPAA questions, who I'm going to first and who anybody listening to this needs to go to first, unquestionably. If anybody wants to, you know, reach out, inquire how to work with you, follow you, um, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, they can reach me at uh, info at ingramandassociates.com and that's Ingram, my last name, and then a little N for A and D. So it's a little N, associates.com. Um, they can look at my website at www.ingramandassociates.com or you can find me on LinkedIn by my first and last name, Sybil Ingram. And I will make sure to have those links in the show notes for sure. And again, I really appreciate time. This has been fun. It's been enlightening. And uh, I agree. Again, I, I can't thank you enough for spending the last hour with me. Well, you know, <clears throat> regulations doesn't have to be boring. And no. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people think Maybe. It's kind of, <laughs> right. Yeah, well, it depends on who's presenting. <laughs> <laughs> if they're boring, then it's going to be boring. And yeah. I don't myself boring and i mean it's it's a lot of this is just kind of common sense um type of stuff but you learn over the years uh the more technical aspects of it and how to present it uh i know the lawyers started talking about hipaa being healthy income paying prepared uh attorneys and so that's what hipaa stood for them um hmm. and um for paying aware attorneys and so they, they would make <laughs> some jokes about it but I can talk about this anytime. I can awesome. talk about other things too, John. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to figure that out for another episode then. <laughs> okay. Well, Thanks thank again. you for having me. I really appreciate it. And yeah. again, I'm, I'm not blushing as much right now, but I'm still very flattered and, and <laughs> very honored. This is a privilege for me to do this for you and I'm willing to do it anytime. I appreciate it.